You are listening to the Rethinking Faith Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Patterson, and I'm glad that you're here. I'm a former pastor turned brewer with a deep love of theology and philosophy. While I don't always wear the label comfortably, Christianity seems to be baked into who I am. I've found a home within the world of process relational thinking and have made close friends with the mystics. So whether you're a devout believer, a questioning skeptic, a bold atheist, or simply someone trying to figure out what it means to be human, you belong here. Thank you for joining me and taking the risk of entering into this sacred space. And thank you for reminding me that we aren't alone on this journey. Let us imagine a better way to be human together. Shall we begin? Hey friends, before we get into our episode today, I wanted to tell you about a fun event coming up that I will be at, a live event called God After Deconstruction. At this live event, Trip Fuller and Thomas J. Ord, both friends of the podcast, will describe the realities and challenges of deconstruction. We all know that many of us are walking away from church and or God, and we have some pretty good reasons, right? The old ways of thinking make little sense, and the hurt is very real. This conference proposes better ways to think about God, because a sensible view oriented around open and relational theology is possible after we deconstruct the irrational and harmful views so many of us have been offered. Fuller and Ord are joined by thought leaders Catherine Keller, John Tatominal, Bruce Epperly, Alexis Lilly, and others to explore deconstruction and the open and relational and process view of God. The event begins at 7 p.m. on Friday and concludes, rather, at 5 p.m. on Saturday with an invitation to an informal meal thereafter. This event is sponsored by the Center for Open and Relational Theology and Homebrewed Christianity and hosted by the Theological School at Drew University. Joining these are the podcast co-sponsors Radical Love, Yours Truly, Rethinking Faith, War Machine, and The New Evangelicals. If you would like to grab tickets, you can find them on Eventbrite. Just search God After Deconstruction, Drew University. Again, that's February 9th through the 10th of this year. I hope to see you all there. All right, friends, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson. And joining me today for the very first, well, actually, that's not true, for the first time uh, where I'm having a one-on-one conversation with them (laughs) is uh, Dr. Adam Clark. Adam, how are we doing today? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. The the last time that you technically appeared on Rethinking Faith was actually a panel conversation uh, that I had with you, Jennifer Garcia-Bashaw and grace jisoon kim at uh theology Ooh. beer camp not this year but the previous year right uh, right which, in north carolina yeah. yep in north carolina and that was a that was a fun conversation we did a bit of like post penal substitutionary atonement uh, <laughs> oh yeah that's right that's right <laughs> i forget yeah yeah so i gotta ask uh three different scholars and theologians coming from three different backgrounds uh to try to talk about atonement in 45 minutes. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a good time. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Sweet. Well, for um, listeners who might not be readily uh, familiar with yourself or your work, could you just um, introduce yourself a little bit, you know, who you are and, and what kind of things you find yourself doing? 
Yes, I'm, my name's Adam Clark. I'm a professor of theology at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. And my specialty is Black theology and African-American religion. You know, I specialize in liberation theology, African-American religion, uh, faith and justice. Um, and I uh, have recently opened up a kind of contemplative specialty, contemplative spirituality specialty that I use at my university in terms of practicing um, the, the spiritual exercises with um, faculty and some staff. Um, I also work at the um, something at, in Cincinnati, Ohio called The Hive, which is a, a center for contemplation, um, art and action. Yeah, and I've recently, I'm, I'm, and I'm faculty there as well. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. I didn't know that about the, um, about the hive. That's pretty cool. Mm, yeah. Yeah. We, we recently just kind of, we're having a relaunch there because they have a new director and we're uh, doing some, there's some amazing things that we're doing for the hive in, in the Midwest. Well, yeah, that's cool. I, uh, I took a note to personally go check out the hive because it sounds like uh, something right up my alley. Yeah, it's nice. it's model it's modeled on like a lot of what happens. If you like Richard Rohr, you'll love the Hive. Yeah, it's modeled that type of contemplative uh, spiritual. Uh, mostly, you know, uh, most people come from Christian backgrounds, but it's not as Christian exclusive. Uh, Christianity just becomes a kind of path of wisdom to open the doorway up to other types of traditions and and walks with the spirit. Hmm. Yeah, I I like that word that you use there, wisdom. Um, I remember encountering Christianity as a wisdom tradition kind of for the first time through the likes of someone like Cynthia Bourgeau. Um, yeah. And that kind of, that played a pivotal role for me in my own, you know, kind of um, faith formation or journey of becoming whatever kind of language you want to put to it. Um, yeah. It makes, it makes Christianity spacious so that people, yeah. you know, a lot of times, especially if you come from an evangelical background, it's so closed and rigid so when you get in the contemplative space, it makes it very capacious, spacious, so that you mm -hmm. could feel that that you have a wider sense of belonging to the whole. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's um, that. I mean, that aspect, that spaciousness, has been super helpful for me. I um, kind of like came to well, I should say, part of how I came to embrace something like open and relational thought or process thinking. Uh, was actually because I came to the mystics first and they kind of opened mm. me up um, to a more spacious form of the Christian faith and kind of gave me an image of the divine um, that I wasn't scared of, <laughs> right? That I, right, that right, I actually absolutely. wanted to get to know. Yeah. And so that's, that's pretty absolutely. cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Most people don't make those links. I'm glad you said that. Um, I've been trying, you know, I haven't done it in any type of writing and anything, but there are a lot of links between process and contemplative spirituality. And very few people explore that. Um, but, you know, they're definitely there. And the process people tend to be much more of a dialogue with science, especially kind of, you know, modern science, while uh, contemplative spirituality, even though it's more substance-based in terms of essence and, you know, this type of primary unity and that type of thing. That's just kind of the language that was accessible, like Aristotelian metaphysics. That's just the language that was accessible, but the language itself is more theopoetic in the way it's trying to point to something and not trying to actually close out 
uh, other forms of possibility. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I've kind of been also recognizing too, or, or kind of shifting how I was viewing process. Cause at first I was trying to come to just like more like certainty and answers, right. Which is kind of the, what is drilled into you, or at least into me and my kind of evangelical upbringing. Um, but then kind of having this moment of recognition where it's like, oh, well, process is actually more so, uh, what if I look at it as like a framework or a potential lens in which to view things? It's more invitational. And then like try that on and see what it does for me. And so um, I've liked it that way because it's it's given me a more loose grip on it. But also, I mean, I'm still very much <laughs> in that camp and world. So um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I, I'm interested just a little bit about your own background and story. Have you like... Did you grow up in the church? Have you always been interested in things like theology? Or is that something that you came to um, later in life? Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody is born into theology. <laughs> theology is a pretty much a... Actually, I think we're in a post-theological moment right now. But um, no, I, I grew up as Episcopalian, ironically. Um, and, and I was actually, uh, you know, an acolyte a choir member, um, very involved in my Episcopal church. And I just recently found out my church was way more liberal than I thought. I was talking to my mother last week and she was, she said, there's some uh, documentary out on the first um, women priest in the Episcopal church around the seventies. And I realized that I had a woman priest when I was growing up and I didn't know that was like a unique thing. Like I didn't think that was anything different. So when I finally went to seminary and I heard all these women talking about like women who are seeking ordination, how tough it was for them. I was confused because I was like, I grew up with women priests. I didn't, it was nothing unusual about it. So I, I had later come to find out that she was not the first generation, but probably the second generation of women priests. And, uh, but she never really talked about it. She never made a big deal. She was, she was um, married to a same-sex partner, which I didn't know. I was too young to know anything of that type of stuff. Uh, but it caused a lot of controversy when I was talking to my mother. Like she, she's finally telling me all this, um, you know that at a at you know, and I see rainbow flags around the church, and you know, to me it was just oh, this is a colorful flag, right? I didn't know what to symbolize. <laughs> So it's really funny, like talking to her and kind of re-understanding, like maybe that's where maybe my progressive political orientation came from, because I saw so much in this kind of really, you know, liberal to radical left church that would get in trouble with the diocese all the time. And because it would rent out its space to, you know, at the time they call them gay groups and that type of, you know, um, and, you know, we didn't think anything of it. It wasn't a big deal, but we were stigmatized by the diocese or something in the community. But I was totally immune to that because it was so normal for me. So I grew up, I grew up that way um, in the Episcopal Church. And later when I got to college, um, this is a kind of a, a sharp turn, I became a Baptist. Now, most people <laughs> go from Baptist to the Episcopal, but I went from Episcopal to Baptist because my Episcopal church was a multiracial church. Uh, the Baptist church I went to was a black church. 
And I had a black preacher who was really grounded in historical criticism. So hearing about the historical Jesus and how Jesus was in solidarity with the oppressed and the poor, and that being very clear to me, helped kind of fund my activism and my politics. So that made more sense to me than, and it kind of, of you know when i in an unconscious level it probably fit in with my background as well by the time i didn't realize that yeah that's funny i uh so i started in a methodist church and then my family went started going to a baptist church and i did the whole evangelical mm. thing and mm. now i find myself in an episcopalian church ah, <laughs> like a progressive episcopalian okay. church yeah that's funny that's Uh, funny yeah it's ironic it's like i and i so and by that i mean i work in this tiny little episcopalian church as their parish administrator um Mm -hmm. which is still something new to me and i'm not quite sure how i ended up there but i am there so right right yeah that's it's funny though you mentioned the the women priest thing because i had a similar experience where the methodist church the first uh pastor i ever had uh, was a woman. And then when I went to the Baptist church and these people started telling me that women can't be pastors, I was just confused because I was like, well, exactly. no, you don't, you don't understand. There's <laughs> like a church five minutes from here and there's a woman pastor. Like, what do you mean? They can't be pastors. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I to tell the same you this. Way. They're right, <laughs> right there. <laughs> you know, that's exactly like it, it, yeah. it shows you how oppression is conditioned, right? Like they teach mm. you oppression. You grow up mm. really open to things, and then people teach you how to see so near the world narrowly, and it's confu- it's confusing to you. It's genuinely confusing. It's not even a moral judgment. You're like, wait a minute, how is that? How is that true, <laughs> right? And when people try to tell you, you know, somehow God works through male bodies more, you know, more effectively than female bodies, it just it's it's very confusing. <laughs> It's very confusing. Yeah. So it really shows you how all these type of isms are very, con- we're conditioned into that. That's not our natural way of seeing the world. Hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> that I, that's interesting. That, that idea of it. Um, how did you say it? Oppression being taught um, at different times and that. Hmm. So you, you also mentioned too, that you, went from, I think you used the word like a, like a, um, ethnically diverse church to a black church. Sure. What, so like, what do you see as kind of, what were some of the, like the major differences there? Right. Cause I, I grew up in predominantly white spaces. And then the last church that I worked in vocationally as a pastor, was like a multi-ethnic diverse church that like really prided itself on that. And so that was kind mm-hmm. of a cool thing. Mm-hmm. What was kind of the difference you know, that you see in, um, then going into oh, like, yeah. this is a tradition, this is a black church. I'm glad you asked that question. Cause I also worked at Riverside church in, um, New York city, which was, which is a multicultural church or multiracial church. And the real difference is, is that even though they're multicultural, they're still very white. And what I mean by white, I mean like the culture the format, the, 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 like, and, uh, you know, in, in, um, when I was at Riverside church, it was under, uh, Jim Forbes, uh, the great Jim Forbes, who's a black minister of a Pentecostal background, but the church still felt very white except for him. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the way it's administered. It's the way it's the liturgy. It's that even black pastors who, who 
minister of these churches, they have to restrain themselves because if he would go full his background, it would it would intimidate or be offensive to a lot of the white liberal um, parishioners. And they'd always would have this tension with him if he would quote too much scripture or if he would shout or raise his voice too much and that kind of thing. So what happens a lot of times, even in our intentions to be multiracial and multicultural, um, and this is just kind of, you know, in our historical moment, even if you're trying to be interreligious, right, in terms of that, this, the, the, the problem is it's very difficult to get into the intensity of your worship if you always have to worry about offending others. For example, um, I meet with pastors who are in their daily lives very multi-religious in terms of how they treat people. But when they pray, they want to pray in the name of Jesus, right? <laughs> but they're always afraid, like the Jesus that I know and I grew up with is offensive to my Muslim and Jewish brothers and sisters and my African, some of my Native Americans and all these other types of things. So they always feel that I can't really be my my authentic self at the expense of being oppressive towards you, right? And I think that's part of like the dynamic and why um, where we're at in this historical moment, this moment of history where the internet and technology is bringing us all together in a certain way, but we haven't learned life together, right? What are the rules for life together? And if we have to lessen the intensity of who we are in order to not be offensive, is that fair also, right? Like that's part of the thing, that's part of the things with like we're we're doing with the nation. I hear straight white men say that all the time, right? Like, do I have to like is, is my is my presence here so offensive? Like, can I be who I am and that type of thing, right? Like, how do you reconstruct yourself in a way that is non-oppressive? Right. So we're all we're we're trying to work that out in this historical moment, just different forms of our how we situate our identities in ways that you can be fully you and I can be fully me. And it's not a hierarchical, non-oppressive. You know, the kind of word that came to mind for me as you were just speaking is um humility, but in mm -hmm. a and and maybe even hospitality in the sense that uh, when we exist in spaces with others, it has to be, or, you know, with, with um, others who are, are like somehow different from us or something like that. Um, it has to be a relationship that is fully reciprocal, right? Where um, it's not just like, oh, I'm inviting some uh, diverse people into my, you know, church or organization so I can take a picture that looks nice for the website, right? We know places no, yeah, that do this kind of thing, but rather mm. this kind of mutually transformative um, thing will now, where now this community doesn't know itself outside of um, this diversity in the sense where the dive, it's not like, um, like there's a difference, I guess, between inviting somebody to go to the prom with you and then inviting them to actually dance. Absolutely. Um, and so like humility yeah. and hospitality come to mind because it's like this reciprocal give and take and not... Um, this still kind of like, oh, well, I'm the nice person letting somebody into my space and like I have something to offer them, but they don't, they don't really have something to give me. Does that make sense? 
Oh, absolutely. I'm like jumbling my words, but. <laughs> no, you're perfectly clear. You're talking about the difference between cosmetic diversity and deep pluralism, right? So cosmetic diversity is kind of this kind of, you know, superficial political thing just to for show, right? Performative in that sense, where deep pluralism is an authentic dialogue, right? Where you're using um, difference as a resource to inform who you are. So therefore, if it's a dialogue, any type of meaningful or rich dialogue, you're changed by the dialogue itself. You're not the same person and they're not the same person, right? So when you're in dialogue with other different traditions, you become transformed by that. You're open to transformation, right? You're not just trying to fit them into your agenda, right? So it's a rich, deep, mutual dialogue. And this is where spirituality comes in. Right. Why people say I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Well, the spirituality is talking about a certain relation that you have with people. Um, the Bible refers to this as neighborliness, right? Neighborliness is not proximity. <laughs> it's a moral category. It's not like who's, <laughs> you know, it's a moral category of how we're supposed to relate, you know, in terms of to the other. And that's what's where, where this moment um, matter of fact, I think one of the most important questions, moral questions of the um, 21st century is who is our neighbor and how should we relate to our neighbor, right? And neighbor, you know, if you look, follow the Bible in terms of the Old Testament, it used to be, well, just fellow Jews are our neighbor, everything outside. It was a tribal understanding of neighbor, right? Which is kind of, I don't know, anybody, you know, listening to us knows spiral dynamics is kind of the red meme, Right? But if you go up, neighborliness comes not just humans, it becomes like the trees are our neighbors, kind of like St. Francis, right? Uh, brother bird <laughs> and sister cat, right? And that kind of thing, where the creatures are your neighbors as well, right? In terms of that. So neighborliness and who is our neighbor becomes our kind of expanding moral vision now, where all of life becomes our neighbor, Right. And that type of thing. And that might be one of the most important ethical or moral questions or theological questions that we need to really center on for the 21st century. Hmm. Yeah, I <laughs> I agree so much. I, for me, it kind of and maybe this is going like too meta, but like, but, you know, underneath some of the kind of um, issues. But I, I kind of see this problem of. um I don't know, I call it like the, the myth of separation or something like that, where uh, we believe that we are fundamentally separate from each other, that we are separate from, from uh, if you want to call it creation or the universe, something like that, um, that we're separate from ourselves and we're separate from the divine. And I think when we buy into that separateness, it's one, I think it goes against the how the universe actually works. Like it, it my metaphysical scheme doesn't allow that kind of separateness to be a thing um, as a process person. Um, but also when we live as if that separation is true, that opens us up to do things like treat nature as a commodity, something that we consume and, you know, abuse it. And, you know, I mean, basically put us in the ecological crisis that we're in currently. Um, or when we believe that we're separate from each other, uh, then we can uh, dehumanize one another or be racist or, um, you know, kill somebody, whatever it is. But it's that kind of I love the, the neighborliness language 
um, and asking that question, yeah, who is my neighbor and expanding it, not just to, um, not just to, you know, the person that lives next to me or the person that thinks like I do and believes like I do, but rather, um, you know, each other, the birds, the cats, you know, the divine, et cetera. That's a, yeah. I like phrasing it that way. Yeah, that's that's a counter narrative. I mean, we have we're we're in our dominant narrative is a capitalist narrative that we're autonomous selves that are separate from each other, right? That's kind of the capitalist market narrative, and in addition to that, which is the dominant narrative of the modern West, in addition to that, we have the narrative of racial difference as well. On top of that, that deepens that, so that we fought a civil war in this country over the narrative of racial difference, and what happened is that even though the North won the war militarily, the narrative, the South won the narrative war of racial difference. So that even after the military victory of the North securing the country over the South, the Confederacy, still the Confederate narrative of racial difference was assumed by the North <laughs> so that you still had like apartheid for a hundred years after that. And we're still dealing with that narrative right now. And we're born into that narrative, certain ways of seeing and looking and being that reinforce separation based on the degraded other that 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 inhibits our capacity for genuine encounter. Right. So the narrative of neighborliness becomes a way of trying to undermine the narratives of racial difference and the uh, and the capitalist narrative. Yeah, and I, I think too then um to use that language of counter narrative, um, what you mentioned kind of being what your specialty as like black theology um and liberation theology, if I understand correctly, both of those um fields would be considered counter narratives as well as well, right? To the here's the kind of um dominant narrative, whether it's you know theological, cultural, whatever, and here's um you know, this, this counter narrative. Uh, and yeah, so I, I don't know. I'd be curious if, uh, for you to respond to that. Is that kind of, oh yeah, absolutely. correctly? Okay. <laughs> no, absolutely. Cool. It understands Christianity as, as, as two, two narrative. You have the, you have the imperial narrative, the narrative of empire, which I refer to by capitalist and narrative racial difference. You could also say those are imperial narratives versus the narrative of Jesus, which is a narrative of, love and justice from the liberationist standpoint, right? So you have this, you have these two narrative, or you could call it, you know, and these become metaphorical, right? You could call it the narrative of Constantinian narrative or the narrative of Caesar <laughs> or the narrative of empire, right? All these are different ways of talking about dominant narratives and the way Christianity is, is a subversive narrative. It's a disruptive narrative, right? That disrupts the imperial narrative and tries to point us to new ways of being and seeing in the world, right? And that's what Black theology does. It uses kind of these co these racial codes in ways that are disruptive of the dominant imperial narratives and helps us be in solidarity with the, 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 the oppressed. Yeah, I... I remember the first, I mean, here, I want like an example of maybe the kind of dominant narrative um, in action. I remember when I first encountered uh, what was then described to me at the time as like, that's liberation theology. And I was told uh, not to read that. 
that it's dangerous, that it's heretical. Mm. And this was all by a um, Presbyterian pastor that was teaching me systematic theology, uh, you know, in the lens of like essentially neo-Calvinism type stuff. Um, Mm. After I had, I guess that was after I graduated college, um, interestingly enough. And my problem as a person with a more rebellious spirit is when you tell me to not do something, I'm going to be like, <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> right, right, right. And yeah. then go do that. And so um, I remember specifically, um, I want to get this right. I think my rebellion came in the form of purchasing The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James mm-hmm. Cone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. Yeah, and that was kind of my first uh, introduction um, into something like, you know, black theology, liberation theology, um, after the kind of dominant culture was saying, like, don't do that. Um, And it, I think, too, it has in this baked in assumption that um, whatever this kind of dominant culture theology is, I mean, you even see this in universities, right? We call this, well, that's theology, basically like white Western theology is theology right and mm-hmm. then in your you go and look and it's like oh well we also offer these other kind like there's subclass you know classes like well here's there's then there's black theology but then there's right. you know right uh gay theology or you know whatever a- 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 adjectival theology yes yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Ad- but like that's yeah. not here's the real do- you know this thing over here is the actual theology and i like that was mm-hmm. one of the first kind of cracks i guess in the system for me yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's that's the way it's taught. It's taught. I mean, that's what happens. That's why black theologians mark white theology as white, right? It's perspectival as well, right? Right, in terms of that. Um and it's this kind of whiteness becomes this kind of unmarked category or a category of innocence. It's like I'm not white, I'm human, right? So it kind of represents <laughs> The entirety and part of like the struggle for liberation is to talk about everything as a particularity. You have to own your own context and particularity when you say that. And you have to talk about your perspective from your own um, specific space and not make it this kind of view from above. And that's what white theology has done for such a long time. And the critique of black theologians, especially James Cone, has been like, if it is from above, then why have you ignored the suffering of black people in this country for such a long time? Right? It, it, it says, well, in Germany, when the German theologians started to like um, really think about Christian theology after the Holocaust, they had to come to terms with the Holocaust. They couldn't just ignore that type of suffering. Uh, after the 70s, you know, male, white male theologians had to deal with the, the presence of women and women having voice. They had to deal with gender. They had to deal with poverty in Latin America. Why not deal with racial injustice in the same way that's in your backyard? How do you ignore that? So that type of blindness became the very condition in which Black theology emerges and says, why have you ignored this? Especially when at the center of your story, you have God forsaken humanity, right? You have this crucified person, a person who was unjustly, unjustly tried, who was flogged, who was beaten up, 
who was tortured and who was asphyxiated so bad that he cried out for his father, right? How can you not see that as related to black men who were tried unjustly, were tortured and flogged, and in the case of George Floyd, asphyxiated and crying out for his mother, right? That these ideas of crucifixion and resurrection are not just something that happened 2000 years ago, they're happening as something every day. So we talk about the crucified people and we talk about resurrections that happen in daily life and not just something that happened as a one-time event. So that's the way in terms of like trying to, theology is about trying to make the Christian message meaningful in our times. And it's not meaningful for always backward looking. We have to look for God's activity in the world today and these are ways of trying to translate the meaning of the message for modern times. And that's what black theology is. Oh, yeah. I, um, I remember very vividly, I, and I forget the name of the sermon, but I remember watching, uh, I had a buddy of mine, uh, Keith, he's a pastor. Actually, he, he, I think he's not too far from where you're at. He's somewhere in Ohio um, and him and his wife, um, you know, they're black and he's pastoring in like uh, essentially an all white church and has, you know, that comes with some difficulties. Um, but Keith sent me a sermon from Cone um, at one point where uh, Cone is preaching, but he he delivers the kind of message that you just delivered. But he also even gets in and and. Um, implicates like the LGBTQ community in it as well and talks about like the lynching of um uh gay men and this kind of thing. And I remember that being so um powerful and I guess kind of one of those things for me that once you see it you can't unsee it. Um right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and and continues to um to inform. And I think another uh gift that um Black theology, liberation theology um, has given to me is it challenged the individualistic notion of something like salvation or atonement um, that I was handed growing up and opened it up into this more communal um, approach and understanding that yeah. uh, was a game changer for me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, for Cohn, uh, the, the blackness is a metaphor. It's an analogy. He's using an analogical imagination. It's not just means black people. It means any people group who has been excluded and oppressed, right? So and that's why when you read his work, especially his early work, he talks about black theology in the context of North America, right? Because he's talking about the racial, the, 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 the context of racial hierarchy in the context of the United States. If you went to another country or another historical moment, it may not be the same type of metaphor, but the the metaphor, or there might be a, a metaphor that might more effectively speak to that. But what he's trying to do is speak to the idea of the excluded, the oppressed. Um, and so when you talk about the kind of lynching or the crucifixion of gays, you know, that, that perfectly appropriate, uh, um, parallels what Cohen is trying to say in terms of the excluded there. Um, 
So yeah, in terms of the crossing the lynching tree, that 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 points to bl blackness is is more of a doorway, right, to open up the entire conversation of the excluded, right? It's an entry point into the conversation. It's not a point. It's not a stop sign. <laughs> it's an entry point. You know, on ramp maybe is a, is a good way to say that. Yeah, that's um, that's actually really helpful. I like that an, an entry point, uh, an on ramp to a larger conversation. Um, and I think that's probably something that uh, I don't know. So uh, people either overlook or uh, you know out of ignorance or perhaps choose to overlook. I think for me this is where um. You know, when something like uh, CRT, critical race theory, has become kind of like a boogeyman in some more recent <laughs> times, um, a lot of it is just misrepresentation and miscommunication uh, of an idea. Um, oh, absolutely. And wokeness, too. Same thing. And woke. Yeah. yeah, that's I mean, I guess that's probably the big <laughs> one right now, more so than CRT. You know, right, right. Um, even though Jesus, even though with Jesus with the Garden, a Garden of Gethsemane, right? He was like, yo, y'all got to stay woke with me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he got mad he wanted some woke disciples yeah. right that that might that's the original woke this stay woke he, he's sitting there having a nervous breakdown and people fall asleep on him yeah. and he's upset right yeah that's the metaphor at least in the black community for wokeness wokeness was about trying to be aware of injustice right in terms of that stay woke now it's like been so um, misconstrued is even an understatement. So caricatured, so cartoonized, and so put onto everything that wokeness becomes a category that's unrecognizable. But it's starting out in the black community to really talk about certain forms of racial injustice being a, a, a it, it was it was identical with awareness in terms of that. And to me, if you're talking about from a Christian standpoint, you, you just root that in, in the in the gospel of Jesus. <laughs> and when Jesus actually was in the Garden Gethsemane. He says, "Stay woke." <laughs> Can't you keep watch with me? <laughs> right, right. Like in terms of that, and CRT also. I mean, also that's another thing that's been so mis uh, caricatured um, and cartoonized, I should say. But when people talk about, you know, I was reading critical race theory since like the nineties. I mean. And all that really is about is it's really trying to say, why do we live in a society that the laws are colorblind, but the outcomes are color coded? And when you talk about the color coded outcomes, we're saying there are more blacks in prison. There are more blacks who have bad health outcomes. There are more blacks who are in poverty or unhoused, right? So if we have all these laws, that are that actually appear to be race neutral, why do we have a society with such racially stratified outcomes? So critical race theory was a legal theory to try to understand how you have a justice system that produces such dramatically different racial outcomes for different racial groups. That's all it was. It was a diagnostic. Now, what it became to mean, I don't even, you know, I'm an academic, so it's hard for me to under, you know, sometimes I don't delve the deeply the popular culture because it's so ridiculous to me. 
But when I hear people talk about it, I'm like, what do you, have you ever, you, you've obviously never read this material <laughs> because the material is not what it's reported to be. It really is like a intentional, if, if you, if you are really concerned about racial justice and this, if you, if you have a general heart for it, you would respect the literature. Um, not saying you have to agree with every part of it, but I'm just saying that the literature itself is really an attempt to try to grasp grapple with the dramatic different part, parts of racial, racial outcomes that comes from the justice systems in terms of convictions and in terms of um, the drug war at the time that they're very concerned about, where you have cocaine and crack that are basically the same thing, but you have higher sentencing for crack victims and cocaine gets a lesser sentence. It was trying to deal with those, those type of issues. Yeah, listeners... Uh, if you want like a really deep dive into that, I, a couple, ah, oh, geez, it was a little while back now. Um, I asked, uh, propaganda, um, to come on and if he would talk about CRT with me and, uh, he agreed, but when he got on, he was like, yo, I gotta be honest with you. Um, I almost didn't do this interview because I'm so tired of talking about this silliness. He was like, also, I'm not the spokesperson for black people. Um, I know about other things, not just critical race theory. Uh, and he was yeah, like, yeah. but I like you. I like you guys. Um, <laughs> and so we we had a fun episode. We called it. I almost didn't do this. Dot, dot, dot. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> gotcha. And prop, gotcha. Yeah, prop did a deep dive into that with us. And um, I mean, he <laughs> that conversation was a lot of fun. He, uh, you know, was so good. He would switch from making me like laugh uncontrollably like you were just doing but then like be able to deliver um something serious all in the same moment and he had this really um big point that he kind of belabored because he was like i'm tired of people talking about crt is not biblical he was like mm. dude is the nfl biblical is wearing mm. jeans biblical is like having mm. a credit card biblical and he just like mm. kept listing all of these things and he was like you oh, guys yeah. are just ducking the conversation like absolutely that's a, is, that's a stupid is, thing to be yeah <laughs> is is dating biblical yeah right. <laughs> right, yeah <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah no i get him i get him i'm, I'm a yeah. professor so i i'm i'm, I'm kind of paid to answer certain types of questions even though yeah being, so i i do get it like it's, yeah. it's it, it'd be frustrated at the time but for those for those who see clearly they can see right through this and see it as it's really not about critical race theory as an academic discipline. It's really what's at work here is about um, reconstructing the myth of, of American origins, right? That's what's being protected here. It's really about what the kind of origin story of this country is going to be. And they see critical race theory as a way of trying to trying to say, because it, it, it's paired with the 1619 Project, which is not critical race theory, but they pair it together. And it's paired with book bannings of other types of books. So th th that becomes like a kind of convenient label, critical race theory, to like kind of ban a whole assortment of stuff that's not even critical race theory, but really what it's trying to ban is about uh, the origin myth of the United States. And they really don't want to confront what James Cone confronts in theology the idea of black and native suffering at the very foundation of this country. And there's much pushback with the democratic demographic shifts that are coming in this country 
of the browning of America and all these immigrants coming in and people trying to change the story and saying that, where am I in this story? And that's what's being so frustrated because you have a whole bunch of folks who have been guardians of the of these canonical books and canonical texts who are saying, how dare you criticize our origin story, right? So critical race theory comes a way of trying to protect that. And that's what's at stake. It's really this type of American origin story. And if you see any references, you know, any relationship to what's happening in Israel and Gaza today, <laughs> there, there it is too. Like all these origin stories are being under attack now, right? So we have to really talk about, I mean, one of the things that people of goodwill have to do, and this becomes like a real, you know, thing is how do we hold these multiple origin stories together, right? In our souls and forge a new reconciling framework that reconciles all of it. And is it possible, <laughs> right? Like this is where we come to uh, the idea of neighborliness comes in. Can you hold an Israeli and, and Palestinian origin story and have a reconciling framework for both, right? Can you hold an African, Native, and European origin story and have a reconciling overarching thing for both, right? Like that's what's at stake here is new stories. And part of what liberation theology does also, it tries to try talk about a new origin story for the Christian tradition, right? <laughs> so that's why it's been attacked. And that's why the, 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 at least the, um, the papacy of the John Paul, the Paul II, like really tried to put a damper on that because he's changing the origin story and saying that the power is not with the magisterium, the power is with the poor. That's what God's working for, right? So what, where is there a need for a church, right? Like, so all of these things are tacking at very, very, um, the mythical foundations of Western culture, right? It's a really trying to reconstruct those things to, and from the people, it's trying to enlarge the story and say, we need a larger story because we've been erased in your story. Like we need to be legible. We need to see ourselves <laughs> in this story. But for the guardians of these, usually who is themselves conservative, they are fighting tooth and nail, both ideologically, economically, and sometimes militarily to keep things as they are. Yeah, that <laughs> I'm glad you drew that parallel between the the kind of like religious myth and then like the foundational myth of, you know, like Western civilization or this country, whatever, because that kind of came to mind when you were speaking. And um, and I was like, wow, if Adam draws that and I made that connection, then like that makes me feel pretty good because Adam's a pretty smart dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah the story uh, about a, pe a people without a land for a land without a people right the yeah people without the land for a land without a people it's like no there are people there yes with the people that were already there like you're not dealing with the people that are already there we have to be we count too that's what yeah. people are saying we count too yeah i uh i saw a uh like a meme video on instagram yesterday where uh there was a gentleman uh, sitting in a car and um he he was from my guess is he was um he was hispanic and uh then there's a guy outside the car like yelling at him and a police officer 
and he the guy in the car is arguing with the police officer and he's like no officer this is my car i found it and then the guy's like that's not how this works you don't just like get to find something and then it's yours and he was like okay well officer what day is today and they're like columbus day and he was like what did columbus do he was like he discovered stuff and he was like yeah and then he said it was his and he was like happy columbus day i found this car it's mine <laughs> and so he's like arguing he's arguing with them over this right um, right and it, right. it was kind of that's kind of a comical way to to, to point at that um yeah, but the, yeah. yeah the the questioning that foundational myth um i think really yeah gets gets at the heart of it because even from um, I mean, with within both of those perspectives, kind of the like uh, cultural perspective questioning our foundational myth or the kind of questioning of the um, Christian narrative or the Christian myth, that's, you know, I don't want to say, I guess violating is, is a, a, a good word, but like kind of like the foundational worldviews of people. And so it's really destabilizing. But also, mm -hmm. if you want to, at least in my mind, if you want to have a faith or a worldview or perspective, whatever that is informed and not just have like your head in the sand or up somewhere else, um, then these kind of foundational myths and stories need to be challenged if they're not accurate. And it's like, of course, no, um, absolutely. yeah. Yeah. We're so that we're, we're recreating ourselves, right? Like, yeah. For, for a, a new world, right? Like that's what, mm -hmm. That's what metanoia really is about. Yeah. Right? yeah. Right? It's about <laughs> recreation or like, what does it mean to be the new creation? Right. We need a new story with the new creation. Right. Yeah, Those old that's... stories, like the old wine is not going to fit in the new wine bottles. Right. The old, mm. I mean, the new wine is not going to fit in the old wine bottles. We, like, we need new wine bottles. Yeah. 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 Right. That, yeah. <laughs> it uh, it kind of reminds me of this thing that, a guy called Jesus used to talk about like the kingdom of God and these kind of things. Um, yeah, it's mm -hmm. interesting, but absolutely. All right. So I forgive me for the kind of like sharpness in this, but I, I wanted to ask you because at beer camp, you, you did a really, had a really interesting conversation, which kind of spurred this um, podcast for me. You essentially said that um, here's liberation theology, black theology that I've been studying but one, and please um, correct me if I'm mischaracterizing what you said, but um, you're like, I think this kind of mystical aspect or the con contemplative aspect actually can offer something to black theology or liberation theology that it's missing or something like that. So I'm, I'm curious mm -hmm. how you see that relationship. Oh yeah. Um, what, what I mentioned um, it's there, but it's not just, emphasize right like um for example uh before we even started the pot the uh this this uh, recording we were talking about howard thurman right like in terms of that who's a mystic african-american mystic uh contemplative christian um he actually wrote jesus in disinherited before cohen started the black theology project right and in the same sense like black theologians or liberation theologians in general let me not just take black theologians they are very fond of using the passage of Luke 4.19 about Jesus comes down and he goes into the synagogue and he unrolls a scroll of Isaiah and he says his anointing is connected to uh, giving sight to the blind, 
the captives going free and declaring the, the year of Jubilee, right? Like that becomes the mission statement for Jesus for liberation theologians. And then they take their context and they talk about what that means in each context. And Jesus is a person who is on fire for liberation, right? Because the spirit of anointing is connected to this kind of liberative work that he's doing for the poor and the oppressed and the captives, right? Freeing the captives, right? What's not as emphasized from a scriptural point of view is that before he goes into the synagogue, a few passages back, what does he do? He goes up to the mountain, right? And he's tempted. He's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and he's tempted by the devil, right? So that is the contemplative space where he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, right? And he's actually kind of sitting there and preparing himself for his liberative mission. And what I said at the camp is that what we need to do is combine both moments, both the moment of spiritual disciplines and preparation and the moment of announcement of liberation. So we can have the kind of focus of contemplation and the fire of liberation and combine those two together in order to talk about a more holistic sense of Christ, of doing both. And one of the reasons why that becomes so important, because at least in this historic moment, a lot of liberationists know what they're against, but they don't know what they're for. Right. They know they want don't want Trump. They don't want fascism. They don't want poverty and that type of thing. But what type of world do we need for? Well, that requires a contemplative act, because what happens in contemplation is that you come from your own centeredness. You're not just reacting to what's happening outside of you. And I think contemplation will cultivate a certain type of spiritual orientation where we can a generative way of being in the world where we can actually kind of. Um, take moral visions and not just be reactive to what's around, around us. And that's what I was encouraging people who are interested in the prophetic past to do is to actually try to go deeper with their type of intimacy with the spirit, because that's what Jesus does, not just the kind of outward kind of political move for liberation, but it's always a combination of both. It's the inner and the outer. And we focused on the outer a lot. I think we have to include the inner in a more robust way. <laughs> yeah, it's uh I think that's that's beautifully said and for me I kind of came to um I guess somewhat of like a similar realization but in in, in kind of like a different space so to speak where um you know, I had the whole kind of like deconstruction experience as you know, it's it's popular to call um Today, where I just had a bunch of like, uh, basically like, fuck the church, it's just everything sucks, burn it down kind of thing, right? I mean, there's episodes of this podcast you can go back and listen to that sound very much like that. Um, but I got, I kind of got to this place um, where ultimately, um, I don't know, this is going to sound too harsh because I, I, I want to say like I, I think that the deconstruction space is 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 necessary um, and I don't want to like police somebody else's spiritual journey. But for me, it almost it came to a place where it, it felt boring and mm -hmm. empty. And I 
no longer I was like, why? Okay, now what? And so you used the word generative, and it was actually kind of getting introduced for me to the mystics and trying things like contemplative uh, practices or centering prayer that kind of reignited that fire within for something more generative to be like, okay, cool. So we know what you're against. Now, what are you for? Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. As you said, and that's a scarier, I think that's a scarier task to be called to though, because now you're asking for transformation and you're asking for you to like actually do something about it. It's not just, you know, it's no longer purely ideological or abstract, but now it's like embodied um, experiential and like moving forward in, in the, world i guess no Does that make no sense? absolutely yeah there, there's a guy there's a there's a um french thinker uh named paul record right he talks about the second night night naivete right the first night at naivete is the desert of criticism where you learn you go to kind of seminary you learn all this type of historical criticism but what what happens to a lot of folks especially a lot of intellectuals is that they get lost there in the desert of criticism. So they know all these type of social historical things about the gospel, but they stay in that, but they have to move to a second night naivete, which is a re-enchantment with the world, right? With, a, with You have to be re-enchanted, right? There's something mysterious that criticism itself doesn't explain everything, right? The life isn't one dimensional, it's multi-dimensional. Right. And you have to have a sense of that kind of awe, that sense of mystery along it. And what happens is that the intellect has to be in service to the mystery. It's not something that's trying to like, you know, life is a life is not a puzzle to be solved. It's a mystery to be lived. Right. So you have to have a sense of that type of mystery that's actually that you're actually doing if you're a theologian or you kind of lose your particular or you actually kind of can fall victim to your critics. The critics say that we reduce the gospel to politics, that all the gospel is, is politics, right? There's nothing else. <laughs> and I'm saying, no, there's something deep about this thing we identify as God, right? There's something, oh, there's something wondrous. There's something striking about it. There's something, it's something that cannot be named. It cannot be contained, right? And it's almost embarrassing to be have faith in this thing, right? <laughs> because it, it's embarrassing to be grasped by it, right? That you can't help yourself, right? You can't really explain it to people who who don't who don't hold the same type of grasping, right? So that sensibility has to be there in order, and, and you know this if you're an activist, because there's a difference between faith-based activists and kind of just general secular activists. When I was in the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, I was in solidarity with the goals of our movement, but there are some things I saw activists do. I was like, I would never do that to another human being. And I would never say that to another, this ain't personal to me. I'm not sitting there wishing bad things on police and trying to hurt their families and all. Like, I don't have that type of spirit in my heart right? What I just want is justice, right? And I realize it's because I'm a faith-based activist. I don't sit there and flip people off and do all that type of stuff. Like I comport myself in a certain way, but I'm, I'm militant about right relationship, but I'm not going to be disrespectful to people I oppose. I'm not going to wish ill or bad on those folks, right? 
So to me, that's a faith base, that there's something that I think that bound us all together, right, in this type of mystical union, that there's a hidden wholeness in Thomas Merton thing that that underlines all, all the antagonisms that I feel at a visceral level that keeps me, you know, following this path, right? So in that sense, that makes me a theologian in that sense. Right. And that's different from just kind of a secular activist. Right. Because I, I do this from a visual. It's from I see that as part, but I see the vision of the whole or I feel this vision of the whole that um that I'm just expressing one aspect of it. But there's a wholeness, there's an interrelatedness that that is still in the background of how I um, walk in the world. Mm. Yeah, that's the. It's that neighborliness again, right? Yeah, or uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I'm reminded of um, there's a special on YouTube that I've watched a million times. It makes me cry every time, and people can judge me for saying that. But uh, Rob Bell has this special called "An Introduction to Joy," and mm. this idea kind of reminds me of that because he talks about how the critic doesn't go far enough, or the the cynical person doesn't go far enough. They kind of just dip their toe into the human experience, but don't embrace it fully. And in that, but rather um, joy is his context, but you're, you know, you're using neighborliness or the connected whole um, is something that fully leans into the human condition, the the pain, the suffering, um, oppression, et cetera, and embraces, um, embraces all of it. And it, there's this, like, as you were saying, this kind of second uh, naivete that comes from leaning into and going through kind of the darkness rather than just um, dipping your toe into it kind of thing. Um, and that for him, he talks about joy as joy makes room for the entirety of the human condition. Uh, it's a way of, it's a disposition, a way of being in the world. It's like something that grounds you. And like what I'm hearing you say is like, you have this sense of groundedness uh, it, that informs um, your activism or like acts as like a, like a hermeneutical tool or a lens or something like that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. really beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I like I joy too. Cause yeah, our culture talks, <laughs> our, our, well, well, our, our culture talks about happiness, right? We don't talk uh -huh. about joy in our culture. Like joy is a definitely a spiritual value versus happiness, which is kind of our kind of cultural success. Value. Are you happy? Are you not happy? But we don't talk about joy and we're called to be joyful warriors, right? Like in terms of that and the joy that we have, the world didn't give it to us and the world can't take it away. Yes. Amen to that. Um, all right. Well, Adam, we are very much pressing up against um, your time here, but I have uh, one more question. That's kind of like um, a very much a Josh question that I wanted to ask you. Feel mm. free to say no. Um, but, um, can I ask you one final question and, and then kind of wrap things up? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm just curious because, um, at, to mention beer camp one more time, um, there was a moment at beer camp that was really interesting to me and I've been thinking about it for a while and I was just, I, I wanted to ask you this, um, because at beer camp for some context, the stage that you kind of uh, presented on and had a conversation on was the open and relational theology stage. Um, if I uh, understand correctly, you're going to be at ORTCON, Open and Relational Theology <laughs> Conference 24. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. if I understand correctly. Um, yeah, and so Tom Ward was pressed during one of the main stage conversations um, and essentially was told by another um, person participating in the event that open and relational theology is not good news uh, to the oppressed or the marginalized. Mm. And that was kind mm. of their critique of it. Um, and, you know, re fully recognizing, again, that you don't speak for all black people or the oppressed or something like that. I'm just curious, as somebody who finds yourself in these spaces, like, what do you think about something like that? Because that kind of, it was gripping to me. And um, yeah. I'm, I'm just curious because I I love open relational theology and process thought. Um, I want to know what kind of blind spots I could have, <laughs> these kind of things. <laughs> yeah well yeah black people don't mess with it so much but um here, here's yeah. i'll do two things <laughs> okay well well here's you know and, and trip and i are supposed to do something you know a deeper conversation about black theology and process theology i think we might do it at orcom uh, we got nice still, we, we, we we've been verbally discussing this i'm not sure how you well know, fingers crossed i'll be hanging out with you guys there so okay I'm excited okay. for you <laughs> Well, here's what I'll say. I'll say most black um, thinkers, they are not attracted to a weak God, right? And, and think about the and, and the reason why is because, well, if you don't know about black condition, think about Exodus, right? You have a slave rebellion in Exodus. What if God was weak and couldn't like deliver the slaves from Pharaoh, right? So in a similar sense, that there's a robust bus sense sense of God in the context of African American history because a God we need God to deliver from slavery like it's a liberation movement and it's liberation despite all that you see like walking by faith not by sight right so there's a strong need for a robust sense of God in that sense so that's part of the reason is kind of that that sensibility um, within the African American ethos okay that being said. Um, I, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm still learning my white head and all these things about open relational. So I don't know all the jargon and everything, but my sense is that that could be changed or amended, um, depending on the white heading category of, um, initial aim. How do you understand the initial aim of God, right? What does God desire? What is God purpose in that sense? And if God's will is to be in solidarity with the poor and the oppressed, I could see some, if that's the initial aim, right? If you have a theological system or open relational system that does that, then I can see possibilities for a connection around that, right? If you have a kind of a, a understanding of God's will being connected in that way that we're lured into that right into that type of orientation then i could see some fruitful dialogue among black liberation theologians and process theology and i think that's the that's the that's the starting point for that well that i have a million questions in my head now but we'll let that serve as a teaser both for <laughs> listeners and myself <laughs> okay and okay. Per perhaps that means you're just gonna have to field annoying emails from uh, josh patterson uh, <laughs> or, or have other future conversations 
because uh, it's deeply curious to me. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, thank you, um, Adam, so much for, for making time to, to hang out with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Hopefully it was um, enjoyable for you as well. Yeah, um, I'll be sure to link, um, you know, like I, I can link your um, profile page or like Xavier's website, these kind of things. Is there anything sure. else that you think would be helpful for me to direct people uh, where to find you or anything like that? Uh, no, the profile page is fine. I, I, have, cool. I have some things under construction right now, but that's probably the easiest way to do that. And, you know, some social media sites too, uh, as well. You can do that way as well. Good deal. Awesome. Well, what? Thank uh, again. Thank you, Adam. I, I really appreciate it. I look forward to our paths crossing again in the future. Um, right. We have had fun conversations and hopefully uh, continue to do so. So, thank All you, right. and listeners, as always. Thank you so much for hanging out, guys, and uh, go in peace. Mm-hmm.